Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited about today's guest, Andrew Yang. Andrew was a 2020 Democratic presidential candidate and a 2021 candidate for mayor of New York City. Named by President Obama as a presidential ambassador of global entrepreneurship, he is the founder of Humanity Forward, Venture for America, and the Forward Party. Andrew's New York Times bestselling book, The War on Normal People, helped introduce the idea of universal basic income into the political mainstream. Andrew, welcome into the back room. Great to be here, Andy. Thanks for having me. Of course. Before we get started, I will say that there was probably a small chunk of time back in the day when I was a member of the Yang Gang. Oh, I'm so grateful to hear that. It's such a positive group that had real desire for a more abundant approach to our policy and politics. We're going to get into that in a little bit, but I, I just want to say up front that it is always refreshing when you see a new face, a new person, a person of color, especially in these days, an Asian American, somebody who's young and brings an energy, a vibrance, a new way of critical thinking to the political landscape. And it doesn't mean you have to end up voting for them or agreeing with them on every single issue. But when you look at what's happening in our political world for the last couple of decades, it's a lot of the same people and a lot of the same thinking. And I definitely want your thinking on all that. But first, we got to address what I call the 300-pound gorilla in the room, Donald Trump. What do you make of the indictment and the circus? Oh, <laughs> the circus around it all. I was trying to dig into what the impact's going to be. First, let me say that of the multiple investigations, this one struck me as the least likely to become his primary legal entanglement. And so it was a mild surprise. I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> the New York one, the hush money one. Because I, I thought that the Georgia suit and the federal investigation both had some better facts going for them and some better legal theories. But, I mean, you know, I, I think it's unfortunately strengthening his hand in the Republican Party, in part because it's taken up so much oxygen. And there's like this unfortunate rally to the flag slash leader effect going on over there. It weakens him in the general. It, it's a sign of where we are in the in American politics, because it is unprecedented and it's very saddening on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. And when you say it's emboldening him or empowering him within the party, isn't it just nuts that the worse he becomes, the more troublesome and problematic things get for him, it makes people happier, some people happier. Yeah. Crazy. So it's one of the things that I was trying to dig into when I was trying to figure out why our politics are so broken. And it's, it's for us to say this objectively because we kind of both play in this space. But there's a very, very partisan relationship with media now where only 15 percent of Republicans say they have high confidence in the media. And so if you have a legal proceeding and the media saying, look, what's happening, then there's this counter reaction, this backlash among the Republican primary electorate that we've seen time and again. Unfortunately, that effect is not going away. And so let me ask you this, because you are at least what I would consider to be, and a lot of people consider to be perhaps the most prominent Asian American leader or figure in the political space, yet you don't seem to come out against Trump or speak out against Trump. And in particular, with all the Asian slurs, the China virus, attacks on Mitch McConnell's wife, uh, Lane Chow, Coco Chow, and even the other night when he did his speech at Mar-a-Lago 
He was talking about Joe Biden's documents that he hid, and, and, and they're all in Chinatown. I don't even know what he's talking about, but it's like he has this thing that is fueling so much anti-Asian American fervor in this country and hate crimes. Shouldn't you be speaking out more? Well, I'm certainly very proud of my heritage, and I have friends and family members who've been victimized and even assaulted mm -hmm. in various environments, including on the streets of New York, and sometimes in a context where it's difficult to parse out whether it was because of their race. But I'm, I'm someone who thinks that lending oxygen and attention to anything that Trump does is playing into his hands is a reason why we are where we are. And that the more we say like, hey, he said this, he said this, we're like running after his stimulus of the day. And then he can play us. He can just say, hey, I'm going to say something else outrageous. And mm -hmm. then you spend all day being like, well, we must respond to this latest outrage, as opposed to doing what I think we should be doing, which is trying to move us in a positive direction, move us forward, solve for some of the structural incentives that reward that kind of nonsense uh, and bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and that's fair. And I hear that a lot from people and I see that a lot online. And so the whole notion of amplifying Trump or not amplifying Trump, I take the position of more like keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Like I want to know what that guy is doing, saying, and I feel like it's important <laughs> that we all know, because if, if we're ever going to have this goal <clears throat> met of convincing at some point at least some of his supporters to break away they have to know the truth they have to somehow be presented with the counter to fox and newsmax and oan and him how do you counter that unless you amplify it all no i i think that there are different approaches Andy, to your point and if someone takes your approach i uh respect and, and in some ways admire it and say okay my approach is somewhat different. And my goal is to try and figure out how we can not just get beyond Trump, but also what comes after Trump. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, the forces that he's revealed and unleashed in American life are, in my view, going to strengthen over time. And so we're going to be left with trying to figure out how to safeguard democracy and make it so that we're more resilient. But if he becomes the Republican nominee, which there's a reasonably strong chance he will, He's going to get tens of millions of votes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we, we oh, have yeah. to re re reckon with that. And mm -hmm. then of those tens of millions of Americans, in my view, I wouldn't paint them all with the same brush. But I, I appreciate your mm -hmm. perspective. And likewise. So you were born in Schenectady, New York, which means you're, you're one of the few people in this world who probably knows how to spell Schenectady, New York. Uh, yeah, I, I, I brought my boys back to my the house I was brought home to. I was like, look, guys, this is where dad, daddy was, quote, unquote, born. I was, you know, born down the street in the hospital. And, I, you know, I wanted them to see it. I don't think they appreciated it at all. My kids are 10 and 7, and, and uh, they're growing up very differently. Than, than well, kids. when you do that, I've done that with my kids. Like, hey, what daddy? And they're like, can we go get something to eat? Like, they totally, just could not like, care. Totally, like, stiff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like, don't care why, why is that important to me where you were born? Like, where you lived, where you shopped, does, where you went to school? Like, well, the, the, the house I grew up in was, I mean, you know, I spent my earliest years in, was relatively humble. So that was one of the things I was trying to get at. It was like, come on, guys. <laughs> well, you grew up anyway, in summers, yeah, and your, your parents emigrated from Taiwan uh, in the 60s, and they were pretty smart people and accomplished, right? They were... Uh, Oh, they were geeks for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, my dad has a PhD in physics. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't mean to suggest that we were somehow hard scrabble. I mean, we grew up very 
um, middle class. Mm-hmm. So my parents met at uh, Berkeley for uh, graduate school. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I read that you were bullied in school. Oh, yeah. I was one of the only Asian kids in my upstate New York town. And so I, I got called all sorts of epithets. Mm. Um, and then I uh, had a real chip on my shoulder as a result. So I went to the gym and studied martial arts. <laughs> that, that, that was like my, my, my response. To my Not a bad response years. to bullying. I got to say, you know, turn the, this turn the other cheek. Right. And then there's martial arts. Well, it, my immediate response was to lose fights. Uh, you know, I'd be like, what? Like, you know, they call me a gook. All right, I guess it's fighting time. And then, um, and I, I was uh, skinnier and scrawnier than the kids around me. I'd also skipped a grade, so I was going to be on the losing end. Um, but in my mind's eye, it was like, well, it's either fight or just take this. Right. So I guess it's fight. Well, you definitely get points for fighting. I mean, I think if you, if, if you understand the psyche of a bully, it's like, all right, I can bully anyone. Why should I bully the one who's going to fight me? Well, the other thing that did happen was that, uh, like, the who I got in a fight with tended to get into trouble with school because, like, the teachers and administrators were like, oh, <laughs> like I, 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 I sensed that, that, uh, you know, like, Yang didn't start this. <laughs> it's like their presumption. And you went to law school, but you hated law. Uh, after you graduated and got a job, you kind of left it, right? After a few months. Yeah, I don't know if you have lawyer friends, Andy, but to be a good lawyer in that context, uh, I practiced corporate in one of the big firms. You kind of have to be very negative because you have to imagine some of the worst things that could happen in this deal and that deal. And I was like, why am I spending my 20s trying to think of the worst case scenarios for this transaction? Shouldn't I be trying to build something myself? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I left after five months to start an ill-fated .com in the in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and you which, which flopped so mm-hmm. you know uh, well usually that. the ill-fated companies do flop yes yes and my parents were like what are you doing and they you know were uh, uncomfortable and just lied to their friends and told them i was still a lawyer <laughs> he's going to medical school <laughs> yeah yeah he decided to leave the law to yeah to md up as a kid were you political were you what were you like as a kid were you sitting in your room with games or were you out handing out bumper stickers for George Bush <laughs> joke, or I Bill Clinton. Had, or... Had, a, had a recent combo with my parents being like, hey, like, we guys political and all? And my mom was like, honestly, we were just trying to figure out this country and, and how, how to make a life. So here's what I did. I played Dungeons and Dragons. I saw the recent movie with my kids because I was trying to get them into it and enjoyed it. I read a lot of comic books. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy novels. So I was a bit of a bookworm and a geek which is pretty consistent, I think, with this image. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, and I'm going to ask you about that in a minute, because your image is really interesting and fascinating, and not always true, which is the fascinating part. But there is a little element of c- cool that I would throw in there that you've acquired. Like, there's the, the Yang Gang would wow. think you as, you know, if, you, oh, if, if we had a bunch of Yang Gangers in here. said to me all day, thank you so much. Uh, wow. And you're so, funny, and so you have a you have a charismatic charm that I think elevates you a, a notch or two or five above geek. So I'm just throwing that out there. So you weren't very your interests weren't political. You didn't care about you that know, kind of I, stuff. And I, I think this is what m- might make me a lousy politician uh, <laughs> is that, uh, like, I think as a kid, I, I I had this sense of wanting things to be better. For people just like working better um and even when i ran for president in 2020 the basis of my campaign was this idea of universal basic income mm-hmm. 
uh, which I thought would help our society work better. So I was not someone who was super into politics as a kid. I was into like fantasy novels and science fiction. And if you look at the vision of the future, one of the things I was running on, which by the way now is definitely coming to pass with ChatGPT4 and the rest of it, mm -hmm. I said, look, we're going to trend towards either Star Trek or Mad Max. <laughs> like, like it's either going to be abundance or scarcity. Mm -hmm. And because I'd, I'd read a lot of science fiction and fantasy, I was interested in a better version of society mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, you know, well, let's talk about your public perception because it, it is really interesting. And people seem to either love you or not love you. And I'm, I'm and I'm being kind when or I the say opposite <laughs> of love. Yeah, I I mean, there's other words I could use that might be much simpler, but I'm going to try to be kinder. But, you know, you, you are a lightning rod. People love you because you're different, because you're not the typical politician, because you're not white. But then there's people that don't like you probably for all the same reasons. Like they don't want to change what they have. They don't want a young-ish Asian-American <laughs> guy. They don't want anything new. And so that scares a lot of people. But this reminds me of a conversation that I had on the presidential uh, with my team. Um, so we'd raised tens of millions of dollars from hundreds of thousands of Americans. So there were professional consultants around with numbers and polling. And they would say, okay, Andrew, here's the deal. People uh, like you think you have good values, uh, think you have a sense of the problem, think you care about them. And you're number one among all candidates for who they want to have a beer with. So your foundations are actually very, very strong. Mm -hmm. But but they will not put you first because of two threshold questions that they don't like you on. One, have the right experience to be president, and two, can defeat Donald Trump. So this is what we should try and shore up with you for the next X week, and here's how we're going to try and do it. So, so that was an interesting conversation. So I declare in February 2018, and when I tell people I'm running for president, they're like, of? <laughs> they're obviously of the United States of America. So we're grinding in obscurity for months and months, and we're just trying to outrace oblivion. And there is an extended period of time when I think I'm pretty straight up, where I'm just like, okay, here's what I'm doing. And uncomfortable with, with saying, and I should be president, because on some level, it's like, look, I'm not running because I have some decades-long desire to hold this office. Like, I, I just want to try and move us to, to the next stage of really human civilization, which in my mind meant trying to choose abundance over scarcity and, and trying to ameliorate poverty and, and alleviate the scarcity and now tribalism that's going to mm -hmm. end up doing us a lot of harm. So during, on that road, I ended up getting to a certain point based upon who I am and and that was against the guidance of whatever political consultants were around because they were like, no, all the stuff you're saying about automation, AI, like EBI, it's like it doesn't track, you know, like the Democrats of New Hampshire and Iowa do not get it. And, you know, like, here's what you should be saying. And I was like, well, if I say what you say I should be saying, I'm literally just going to sound like every other freaking Democratic candidate on the stump. Right. And they were like, yeah. And did you notice that they actually get applause and you don't? And then I was <laughs> So, but that's not what so, it's about. That wasn't what it was about for you. And it really isn't what it should be about for any candidate. If you can't stay honest and genuine to your core beliefs uh, from a foundational standpoint, and if all you care about is applause and winning, 
then you're Donald Trump or anybody not as evil, but as perhaps as self-serving. Or maybe more effective than I was, Andy, because to your point, like a lot of the folks we're describing who are a little bit more generally appealing and don't have, uh, let's say, a signature policy that would actually change things a whole lot. They win, you know, because right now we have a system that will reward certain types of communication and candidates and behaviors and less so others. And in, in my case, when I tried to be normal, it was a total dud. And I didn't even realize I was trying to be normal because I was just starting out running for president, not knowing what I was doing. And then when I leaned into my actual thoughts and qualities more, we ended up being able to compete, not win, but compete. And then you get to that point And I I think that's one reason why this lightning rod you're describing is there is that some people might see or hear me and say like, oh, this guy reminds me of people I know and work with. He just Mm -hmm. seems like a person who's like running for office and like not one of the cookie cutter politicians. I like that. And then other people might find it super irritating or offensive that someone who hasn't served in public office for X years was running for very significant seats Mm -hmm. uh, or is not treating everything with deathly seriousness all the time. You also have this perception of being this Silicon Valley candidate, the savvy tech billionaire, a serial entrepreneur. And I don't think any of this is your doing because I couldn't find much of anything of you promoting yourself that way. But there's been this image of you that you are this guy and Forbes, you know, wrote their story and they basically said you have an average Joe's investment portfolio. Like, your net worth is maybe a million plus or something like that. So there's nothing wrong with you not being a billionaire or not having a billionaire's portfolio. But how do you think you got that perception? What makes people think that you're something like this Elon Musk-like figure that you're really not? You know, I, I, I think that there are uh, a couple of reasons why. And I remember also having a conversation with my team about this. So I got introduced to one of my first events in Iowa I was introduced as California tech entrepreneur, uh, Andrew Yang. And uh, I was like, not from California. And my last number of years have been spent running uh, essentially like an economic development nonprofit. But they see Asian guy Mm -hmm. running for president and they just thought, well, let's go with an image that um, resonates and is familiar. And I said to my team, like, I'm fine with it because to your point, did we ever put that out there? No. Um, and also, did my team actively try and fight it? Yes. <laughs> they, they would like complain to reporters. They'd be like, hey, what is this entire California tech zillionaire thing? And I, I told a joke about it at an event where I said my wife was like, where the heck is this billion dollars they keep talking about? To me, it's racism. They see an Asian guy who's smart and they, they got to assume that like in his past life, he made billions of dollars. I mean, you've had failures in business. It's not like you are a savvy tech billionaire or Silicon Valley entrepreneur. You've tried businesses, had businesses, failed businesses, had some success with another business, the prep company. It's just fascinating to me that you have this perception of being someone that you're not. Well, thank you for that, Andy. I appreciate it. It is nice to be seen as a human being. But the second big part of it was that I was running on these ideas of AI and automation Mm-hmm. universal basic income and that just struck people as very very uh silicon valley ish when, when you were talking about people upset or offended that you would run without experience i mean look at zelensky he should end that conversation forever 
right? Because here's a guy who not only didn't have political experience, but he was a comedian who was playing the president of Ukraine. And he's going to go down in history as one of the best ever. In this country, we have this perception that you have to be waiting in that cesspool for years in order to lead the cesspool. That message does click with people. I mean, I ran into that all over the country. We need people who are not involved in politics, in my opinion. I think George Clooney would be an amazing president. You're not the first person who's told me, mm-hmm. talking to someone in Hollywood. I said, hey, who do you think should run out of the folks you know? And then no hesitation person was like Clooney. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but there's a million people like that. There's a million people who have no experience, but, but they have all the experience that, you, that they actually need, right? They have intelligence. They have empathy. They have intellectual curiosity. Unfortunately, if you line up the 100 people that you might want to run for office, from outside of politics. And by the way, I talked to some of them. I'm like, hey, like, you know, you want to consider throwing your hat in the ring? Um, a lot of them now are very much turned off because of the nature of the political environment where they say, look, if I do this, it's going to make 50% of people hate me immediately and all of my dirty laundry is going to get aired out mm-hmm. and all the stuff that that's going to make this a very unappealing choice. And, and so I, I think, unfortunately, we're going to lose out on a lot of the people that you're describing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned UBI before, universal basic income, which is not only done in some places in the world, but it's also being done in a lot of pilot programs here in the country. Your plan in particular, which was to give people $1,000 a month, regardless of whether they were Michael Bloomberg or the janitor, some estimates were that it was going to cost shy of $3 trillion. In in concept, there's nothing wrong with it. And it's actually, I think, a, a good program because we know that our government gives handouts to very wealthy people all the time and with loopholes. So we should level the playing field. The, the low-income worker or middle class should get the same benefits from our government. But why do you think there was so much criticism about your plan in particular in terms of why it won't work? It's too expensive. It's this, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's interesting because um, after COVID got started, I got dozens of phone calls, um, people saying, how does it feel to see a version of your plan get right. ruled out in the way that it was. <laughs> and what most people don't realize is that the stimulus checks that we received were a very small fraction of the monies that were spent on the COVID bill. So the total COVID rescue packages came to something like $5 trillion. And if you do the math on that, if you have 330 million people, let's say you're looking at spending 15000 a head or so, which is what we did. And obviously the stimulus checks were not 15,000 ahead. <laughs> the stimulus checks were maybe like 2,000 ahead, something like that. So what happened with the other several trillion plus, I don't have any judgment because a lot of this stuff I think was a good idea, where it was put into state governments and local governments. It, it was put toward various actual COVID measures and distribution mm-hmm. and programs. But a lot of it was just put into the financial system in a particular way. And that was one of the messages I was hitting when I was going around the country is that, look, we spent $4 trillion bailing on Wall Street like during the, the crisis. Does anyone remember anyone looking around saying like, oh, what are we going to do? Can't afford it. Can't afford it. Like, I don't remember any of us voting on that either. I mean, they were right. just like, well, push came to shove. Let's do it. And then the same thing happened with COVID. So I, I think it's hard for people to fathom expenditures at a certain scale until there's a crisis upon us. And the argument I'm making is like, look, we're approaching 
a crisis in terms of our labor force participation, our quality of life in various ways. I mean, when I was running, there were all these data points showing that deaths of despair had surged among middle-class Americans uh, in various communities. And the, the data post-COVID has been terrible, like more than a year of lost learning among our kids, like mental health crises spiking all over the place. I know that overdoses have um, continued to rage. So when you ask us, like, why weren't people looking at this plan in a particular way? By the time I stopped running in 2020, the public approval for something like universal basic income was up from 27% when I was starting my run. <laughs> it was quite low. And then it, it was up to 65% in 2020. And I don't know what that number is now, but I'm sure it's over 50%. It took people to experience pain personally, which is the way it often happens in this country. You know, you're probably more prone to support gay marriage if you have someone gay in your family, a la Dick Cheney. You are more prone to support a government handout if you are Marjorie Taylor Greene and you need it for your business. I think COVID really taught people that it's okay if government helps us because it's our money. It's our money. It's our tax dollars. So we should get it when and where we need it. We'll move on to the next question. You had moved out of the city during the pandemic and uh, trekked upstate. And uh, you were quoted as saying, I think in the New York Times, uh, this is a quote, can you imagine trying to have two kids on, on virtual school in a two-bedroom apartment and then trying to do work yourself? Now, you were criticized for being a little tone deaf on that. Is that a fair criticism? Oh, yeah, for sure. That quote makes me sound like a jerk. And in, in speaking, frankly, I didn't decide to run for mayor until November of 2020. And so when COVID hits in February, March 2020, uh, I went to the house upstate and then we went to Georgia. And so the last thing on my mind was like, oh, maybe I should stick around the apartment in case, <laughs> you know, in, in case I decide to run for office here. That wasn't a consideration. I, I will say that that quote is, is out of like a 45 minute interview and seemed designed to make me seem tone deaf. But it is. Said it, it, and, and it makes I like you, but it's sound a like a jackass. Yeah, yeah. It makes you sound like a jackass. So I'll take it. Yeah. So let's talk about forward. Third parties, they don't work. They're spoilers. They cost people elections. George Bush got elected, blah, blah, blah. You see where I'm going here? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally. Good good imitation, Andy. <laughs> I spent 2020 uh, on lo you know, lockdown, um, but also trying to figure out why I still felt so despondent about the direction of American politics. And I'd come off the presidential trail, probably overachieved by any standard measurement. So it's like, oh, I should feel pretty good, right? But instead, I felt awful. And, and so I was trying to dig into like why I feel awful. Even now, as we're having this conversation, you know, a couple of years later, it's like, why do all of us feel kind of awful about the direction of American politics? Right now, 22% of Americans are happy with Congress, but the re-election rate for individual members is 94%. And so you're like, well, how the heck is that possible? And the reason is that 90% of the congressional districts in this country are non-competitive in the general. They're either blue or red. And so you know that you're going to have a Democrat or Republican representing that district. And the only way that that person can then lose their office is to get primaried from within their own party. Right now, because of the way our two-party system is designed and the sliced-up gerrymandered districts are designed, that you're going to have people that are serving very, very different incentives than uh, public good or what 51% of us want or whatever it is. But then I found a path out. 
the path out is what happened in Alaska in 2020. And this is not getting nearly enough attention. Where in Alaska in 2020, they turned off the party primaries. Mm -hmm. They said anyone can vote for anyone. And the result of that in 22, last November, was that Sarah Palin loses to a no-name state legislator named Mary, Mary Peltola. Mm -hmm. uh, and less reported, Lisa Murkowski beats a Trump-backed challenger named Kelly Shabaka, even though she voted to impeach Trump in a state that you think of as kind of reddish. And the reason why she survived is because there was no Republican primary. Mm -hmm. If there's a Republican primary, Lisa Murkowski loses hands down. And you can see that because in the House races, eight of the 10 House members who voted to impeach Trump that were Republicans did not make it back. Um, that includes Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and Peter Meyer and some others. And the two that did make it back were in strange environments in Washington state, where it's like top two, et cetera, et cetera. So back in 2020, this light bulb went off for me and I said, you have to turn off the party primaries for us to have a chance to get out of this mess. Mm -hmm. Then I thought we have to do what they did in Alaska in as many states as possible. So, so how does that look in real life? There are 25 states that allow ballot initiatives that can get rid of party primaries. Mm -hmm. Maine did it in 2016. Alaska does it in 2020. And it was on the ballot in Nevada in 2022. Now, what happened in Nevada is that both Democrats and Republicans came out against it because they don't like something that lets anyone vote for anyone because then they can't predict it. They can't control it. They don't know who's going to win. The Democrats spent seven figures trying to say this ballot initiative was illegal. They lost, by the way, because mm -hmm. it, it was legal. If you're going to try and get rid of party primaries in states around the country to turn down extremism and make it so that reasonable legislators can like do what's right for 51% of us, I concluded the only way to do it is to do a movement from outside of the two parties that can include Democrats and Republicans who just want things to work better. And that's what the forward party is. It's a positive popular movement right that can but, but Democrats can that be accomplished as a pack or a lobby but the creation of a third party and having third party candidates i mean there is a lot of truth al gore lost the election by a million votes and nader pulled three million and yeah you can argue well how do we know no, no, but, but no i just want to cut you off there andy every example people use like the examples you just use assume that we're talking about a presidential election the criticism i guess is is really coming from a place of why create a third party when we know it cannot work. Why does forward need to be a third party putting up candidates instead of a super PAC that raises money, lobbies, works within the system, within the two parties? No, no. So I'd love to break, mm -hmm. break down the mechanics in a particular way. So, um, so 25 states are legislative states mm -hmm. where you don't have ballot initiatives. New York, legislative. Uh, Connecticut, legislative. So uh, how the heck can you get a state legislature that is run by one party or another to try and turn, you know, turn down their own power, frankly? Um, and so in Connecticut, in 2018, uh, a third party candidate ran for governor on this platform um, and got 4% of the vote in Connecticut. Didn't win, to mm -hmm. your point. 4% is about what you'd expect. Come 2022... They actually have 4% of the vote and a ballot line in Connecticut's gubernatorial race. Not They're not running, but they have this 4% of, of folks. And then the Democrat and the Republican candidates both show up at their doorstep and say, hey, we want your endorsement. 
and we want your uh, support because it's a close race mm-hmm. and your 4% might make a difference to us. So what do you think the condition was for the Democrat or Republican to get the endorsement? You have to be for ranked choice voting and uh, and turning down the, the party primaries. So then both the Democratic and the Republican gubernatorial candidate endorsed ranked choice voting. You know why? They just wanted the 4%. If you look at it at the national level, you and I live in New York. We know our votes are not going to matter in the presidential election. So we're probably going to donate money and hope it gets spent in a swing state. Um, they're going to be six swing states, more or less. Uh, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. You could make an argument for a couple of others, New Hampshire, et cetera, et cetera, but whatever. Um, so, so then those six states uh, are going to get inundated with various um, advertisements and people showing up at the same. They're like, oh, vote for my person, vote, vote for my person. Now, if you take a step back, you're like, wait, why is it that, you know, 44 states don't matter in a national election? But let's leave that aside right. for a second. Uh, you know, if you were to get together a group of independent voters in those six states and they say, look, guys, like, we'll go your way if you try and actually cure some of these terrible incentives. Would the parties then maybe listen to it? Maybe. Um, so you have to play politics to actually get things done in a place like Connecticut, like maybe at a national level. Like if you do these other things, you're just going to be blowing a gentle breeze <laughs> on people who are very, very strong incentives to stay in place. Look, it's a it's a noble thing you're doing because I think your intention is in the right place. I think the criticism and my own personal perspective is that, especially today when the stakes are so freaking high, I don't know what Forward's plan is in the presidential election, yeah, but it, if it's going to end up in some way serving as a spoiler in the same way Nader did, that is not going to serve what the mission of Forward is, and it's certainly not going to make a lot of people happy. Andy, and what I would say to folks is like, look, if you see that we are doing that in that race, then... Feel free to be like, hey, guys, I totally disagree with that approach. But then, you know, given um, the stakes, that's often going know, to be but, too but, late. But, but that's where everyone's Now is the goes. time to really question what the motives are and what the what the stated uh, uh, purpose but, is. But that's, that's part of it, is that, like, that is a hypothetical that's, like, X decisions away. And, like, there's a lot of stuff to do in, like, the other 500,000. Yeah, I get that. But with uh, all due respect, when the, are, when the democracy country. is on the precipice of failure because of the cl- landscape we're in, with Trump and Trumpism and the Republican Party and the fealty that comes from. I mean, you see what Lindsey Graham, I mean, he was one of the good guys a few years ago. You know, it's it's hard to say, let's wait and see what happens because no, no, not, they're wait, working wait right happens. now to destroy America. We can't wait to see if something like Forward or something else comes along that does put us at more risk of seeing our democracy fail. And we saw, we came close to that. So the folks associated with Forward are behind not having Sarah Palin on the national radar and being a member of Congress. And instead you have Mary Paltola, not having Kelly Shabaka as a U.S. Senator. Instead you have Lisa Murkowski. I mean, these are like very, very real yeah. grades. And do you think that those sorts of people might actually be people that help keep the democracy strong or whole? What has Forward's role been in any of that so far? You're citing an example, but has Forward as a party, as a movement, using its funds, are you partly responsible for what happened in Alaska? Or, or are you oh. trying to duplicate that more? Well, we're partially responsible for what happened in Nevada, which is doing what they did in Alaska two years later. Mm-hmm. And it passed 5347. Mm-hmm. 
because the average Nevadan looked up and said, you know what? I think I should be able to vote for anyone. And that political independent over there, who's a military veteran, also should be able to vote mm -hmm. um, in the primaries. I was in Nevada campaigning. Our state lead was integral to, uh, you know, to, to that campaign and those efforts. So we're going around in real time trying to actually fix the incentives mm -hmm. and structures and turning down the incentives. And as you can sense, a bit of frustration in my voice because everyone's like, oh, like Nader, da-da-da. And part of it, Andy, is be like, give me some fucking credit. You know what I mean? We're actually like taking shots on goal right now in mechanics and then people are talking about like a speculative race and a speculative da-da-da that doesn't even exist yet. Or like will probably never exist. But the thing that I will say that's even more pressing and important to your point, which is you think democracy is on the edge. I agree. I think we're on the precipice of some very bad things happening. I agree. How the heck are we going to get out of this mess in real life? And in a two-party system, if your plan is to say we're going to defeat the other party for all time in all places, it's not a, a sustainable plan. Let's say we end up with a deep recession. Do you really think everyone's going to be like, yeah, we're just going to go with the incumbents? If you're actually concerned about the direction of American democracy, you need a real plan. And this current system is going to wind up trading power back and forth in some time frame. I do give you credit. I yes, don't yeah, knock I anybody who tries to make America a better place. But I got to be honest with you, when I hear you say, give me some fucking credit, I mean, that kind of shit is what makes people a little nervous about you. And might answer my earlier question of why do they either love you or not love you? Because that kind of smacks a little bit of like you and it's self-serving. And I, I don't believe that's what you meant. Like give are, me some credit but, not to do destructive things. Look, you know better than I do because you ran for president. You know that everything you say, people are going to hang on, especially if it feeds a narrative. You can imagine that for, for me... How many times have I been asked a question about, like, Nader, spoiler, blah, blah, blah. If you want to put a number on it, you know. And but you're that's in the kitchen. I mean, with all the respect, you're in the kitchen. But, but, it's going to be hot. Have I raised my hand and said, hey, guys, like, you know, like, running for president in 2024? I have not. And so when people, and by the way, do I have people breathing in my ear every day saying you should run for president in 2024? Yes, I do. So when people come to me and say like, oh, like blah, 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 da, 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 it's like, give me some credit in that I'm a sane, well-intended human and I'm going to try and help move the country in a good direction. Mm -hmm. I'm not some egocentric lunatic where it's like, I, I just like seeing my name on posters again. Like, let's run it back. No, look, it, you know, it, what you do, what anybody does in politics and in Washington is a thankless job. I definitely appreciate it because politics is a dirty business and you have to be willing to play in that mud and you've done that and but you know like i said the stakes are high right now and people get a little nervous but uh andrew i want to thank you for your time you're an interesting guy you're a smart guy you're certainly as an asian american or as an american you have an important voice in the dialogue right now and you're doing some interesting things or trying to do interesting things so i do hope you'd come back and we can get into some other things i do think you bring some fresh perspective and good intention to the table. And and both of those are not in abundance today in Washington. So, Well, thank you, Andy. Again, I'll take it. Um, that and being cool. Have a great one. You too. Say hey to the team for me. <laughs> take care. That's episode 61. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. 
And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, who I want to say ran solo today. Gets a big thumbs up for that. Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Andrew Yang. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. Thank you.